In this episode of the Euctropolis podcast, the thrills, spills, and trills of classical ukulele. Welcome back to the Euctropolis podcast for more real ukulele answers to real ukulele questions. I'm your host, James Hill. In this episode, classical ukulele. We're going to take questions from students working on classical music in the ukulele way, and also jump over to ukulele in the classroom and the Jehui teacher certification program. We are going to follow the classical music where it leads us and answer some key questions along the way. Stick around. Our first question comes to us from John, who's working on one of my favorite classical melodies of all time. This is from Vivaldi's famous Four Seasons set of concertos. This is uh, the first movement theme from Spring. And even if you're not sure what it's called, you've probably heard it before. It goes like this. Such a great melody. So springy somehow. (laughs) And as we head into spring here in the Northern Hemisphere, it seems appropriate. So John's question is, that chord 3215 is too difficult right now. He says, I have short fingers and it's very difficult to place all the four fingers. I try to substitute the B flat chord for something else, but it doesn't sound right. Okay, John, this is a great question. Thanks for bringing it up. There's no question about it. That is a tricky moment. Uh, John is talking about... Uh, the moment that goes like this. You hear that, that high note there? That note D on the A string, fifth fret. If you only had to play that note, it wouldn't be a big deal. But in this arrangement, because it's from the ukulele way, and the ukulele way is all about playing the chords and the rhythm and the melody simultaneously, you're not just playing that one note. That would be easy. You also have to play the B-flat chord at the same time, as if playing the B-flat wasn't hard enough already. Now you have to play the B-flat and this high note at the same time, giving you this monster chord in measure seven of this arrangement, which is three, two, one, and then the pinky finger stretching way up to high heaven, five. So if you're following along on your ukulele, or if you're you're just imagining this in your mind's eye, imagine from the ceiling down to the floor, here are the numbers. Three, two, one, five. Yeah, that is the problem. (laughs) And it's a problem that most students have as they come through this arrangement, because that is something that they have never been asked to do before, to hold down a chord that is already quite challenging, and then sort of like a frog tongue, you know, shooting out to to grab a fly out of thin air. That pinky finger just extends itself up to the fifth fret. 
And to make matters worse, it only happens for one short beat. And then it kind of retracts back to something a little more manageable. So this is where John finds himself, and he's wondering, are there any alternatives or any tips? Well, there's always another way, right? <laughs> That's the only thing we know for sure. There's always another way. So sure, you can practice this until um, you find that it gets a little bit easier. I'm not going to discourage you from just good old-fashioned practice. And I've talked in other podcast episodes about how to take a chord and break it down into two notes at a time and do little exercises where you sort of polish up every interval within the chord and then you add another one. And you add another one. And that process that just took me, you know, 10 seconds could take you 10 weeks as you work on every element within this chord. That's an approach to learning the B-flat chord that I outlined in episode number 27 of this podcast, an episode called A B-flat Chord and an Irish Jig Walk into a Bar. So if you want to hear more about that, check out that episode, episode number 27 at euktropolis.com slash podcast. But in the meantime, I'm going to give John another alternative here, which is what happens when you practice and practice and practice and it still doesn't happen and you just feel like giving up? What then? What happens when you just want to give up? Well, you look for an alternative. And John has said in his comment here, he said, I've, I've tried to replace the B-flat chord with something else uh, and nothing's working. Well, you can't replace the chord itself. I mean, Vivaldi wrote this chord at that moment. So let's stay with what the composer wrote. But we can replace the voicing. At least usually we can get away with this. Voicing, remember, is just a word for how you play the chord. Not what chord you're playing. It can be B-flat, but B-flat has many different voicings, many different fingerings, many different ways of playing it. And so we're not going to change the harmony itself. We're going to stick with the same three notes, but we're going to reshuffle them, put them in different places on the neck, hopefully a place that still gives us this note in the melody so that we don't recompose or decompose <laughs> Vivaldi. We're going to try to keep the D note in the top voice, but find another way of playing this B-flat chord. And the way I would suggest would be this, 7 5 Six, five. Again, those are the fret numbers from ceiling to floor. Seven, five, six, five. And yes, my first finger is straight across on the fifth fret. Just like that. Now, that gives me almost the same sound as the original voicing. Okay, not quite the same. But because it's so quick, you're probably not going to notice if I change that voicing because the melody note remains the same. Here are the two options side by side, almost like back in the day, if you remember the Pepsi taste challenge or something where they'd come around with a, in a truck and they'd drive around through communities and have everybody like blindfold themselves and try one sip of Pepsi and one sip of Coke. <laughs> and then you would win a prize if you said what they wanted you to say, which was, oh, Pepsi is way better. 
we learned pretty quickly how to um, game that system. All we had to do was pretend we like Pepsi more. So here's one option. That's the new way of doing it. 7565. And right side by side is this one, the old way of doing it. 3215, the big stretch. Now, if I really spend time on those chords, you can hear that this one, the old way of doing things with the stretch, is a little more rich, isn't it? It covers a wider range than this new one, which sounds more compact, because that's exactly what it is. It's more compact. It doesn't cover as many frets, so it doesn't have the richness, but on the other hand, it doesn't cover as many frets. So it's more accessible to folks who are struggling with that big stretch. And here's what it sounds like in context. First, I'm going to play it the way it's written on the page with the big stretch. And then I'm going to try this new voicing that's a little more compact. So here's the original. Okay, you notice that it happens a few times. Vivaldi likes that note so much, he keeps on going back to it. So even though each one of them only takes a heartbeat or less, he goes back to that time and time again. So this is something that you can use throughout this arrangement. And here is the more compact version. It sounds like this. So, I don't know, which one do you like, Pepsi or Coke or Indifferent? I mean, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm sitting here listening to both as I'm playing them, and because that chord is so short, or, I mean, there is a difference, clearly, but I don't know. It doesn't really bother me one way or the other. It still ticks the box and says, that's cola. <laughs> you know, like, it's a B-flat. Okay, I'm happy. So this is a case where I'm not too picky, really, about what students decide to do. I do think it's a good exercise to go through it and, and sort of wrestle with, do I want to go to the effort of stretching to get that extra little bit of richness in the sound? Or am I happy to play this more compact version, which, funnily enough, does require a little bit more shuttling of the hand up and down the neck. It's not a totally free lunch. I mean, that's kind of a quick shift, isn't it? But at least the B-flat chord with the D on top is now accessible to students like John who are struggling to make that big stretch. So I hope that helps John and anyone else who's listening who may have had this same question. Very common question, a great question. I hope you're enjoying this beautiful piece of music and uh, keep up the good work.
Did you hear that trill at the end of the Vivaldi? Just a little bit of filigree there, a little bit of sparkle and shine. It's really common in classical music to have those trills, especially in the Baroque era. And our next question is going to take us deeper into that world of trills. So we're going to jump over now to the J. Huey Teacher Certification Program. And that program is built entirely around the free ukulele method that's called Ukulele in the Classroom. So every lesson in Ukulele in the Classroom has a corresponding set of lectures in the J. Huey Teacher Certification Program. So the structure of one is the structure of the other. And once again, those method books... The levels one, two, and three of these method books are completely free. You can just go and get them right now, if you don't have them already, from euketropolis.com slash classroom. And in those books, which I co-wrote with my mentor, the grandfather of Canadian ukulele, Chalmers Doan, the two of us set out to create a, a method and a set of repertoire that would really teach musicianship and music literacy. And one of the key components of that was to include some classical music, in addition to popular music and music from around the world. Those are the three pillars of the repertoire in this method. Music from around the world, so that we get to hear and experience different cultures through music, as well as European classical music from the classical, Baroque, and Romantic eras, as well as popular music that you can just strum and sing and have fun with. Those three combined make a really nice, hearty, musical meal for students. They're learning all of the fundamentals of musicianship to make them independent, intelligent, creative musicians. And they're doing that all through the ukulele. And this method is totally free. So go and do it. If you're thinking of starting a a program in your school, or uh, after school, or online with a group, and you really want to make musicianship the focus of your teaching, just go download those books and get started. Euctropolis.com slash classroom. For this question, we're going straight into level three. We're jumping right into level three and into one of the most complex pieces in the method. Don't get the wrong impression now. This is not lesson one. This is way down the line in uh, level three, lesson 20. So near the very end of the method itself. It's a piece called March. It's from the Anna Magdalena Notebook. It's by Johann Sebastian Bach. Although there is some debate as to whether he wrote it or whether one of his sons wrote it. In any case, it is a great example of the Bach style of writing and the Baroque style of music at its best. If you don't know the melody, I'm going to play it, at least a little bit of it, for you now. And then I'm going to take a question from a Jehui Level 3 student. And just note that I'm going to be playing along to the backing track, which is available uh, through the Teacher Toolkit. And if you want more information about the Teacher Toolkit, which is a way of just making your lessons more interactive and fun and generally awesome, then you can find out more at eutropolis.com slash toolkit.
now that you've heard the melody, or at least some of it, this whole thing is just going to make a lot more sense. Our question comes from Marianne, and Marianne is working toward her Jehui Level 3 certificate, and she says, I love this piece. But she's also wondering how to play the trill that you heard at the end of the march there. She says, I'm thinking I play the F, and then the E, and then the D, and then hammering on the E in a trill-like way. Uh, This is a great challenge for me. Well, first of all, Marianne, you've really opened a can of worms here because the trill is um, such an important part of Baroque music, and it is a little tricky. And there are so many subtly different ways of doing it. I'm not going to pretend to be a Baroque music expert by any means, but I have been playing classical music. I've been playing the violin since I was very young. And so I've had to learn as a student various approaches to actually making this trill happen. The trill to me has always been a little bit like a pirouette, uh, either a, a ballerina or a or an ice skater or something, and literally feels like the music just does a, a quick turn or a, or a flutter. That's what I've always imagined, you know, visually, that a trill represents. It's a very delicate and potentially fun thing to do, although for me growing up, I always found them really frustrating, you know, because I, I didn't feel that I could move my fingers that quick. So, Marianne, you're absolutely right when you're talking about how to do this. You know, you you put the note of the moment down, and then you choose a note above that, which is usually one fret away or two frets away, depending on what sounds best in that key. In this case, it's two frets away. And you just kind of hammer it, and then hammer it again, and then hammer it again. But if it were that simple, you know, everybody would do it. (laughs) There are lots of little things that go into making that sound smooth. So the first thing is that you want to use your strong fingers. And so although I'm holding a D note, which I would usually play with my middle finger, second finger on the C string, here I need all of the strong fingers I can get above the note of the moment. So I'm going to play that instead with an index finger. And that gives me the ring finger free to do the hammering. I find the ring finger works really well for hammering like this. Now, let's just take a step back and see how we would build up to that point, both in your own practice and for your students. How do we get to that point? We don't start here. You know, that's the end result. How do we get to that place? What are the steps along the way that get us to that place? Well, trills are really just hammering and pulling. Hammering and pulling is using the left hand to play notes instead of the right hand. So it all starts with what I like to call the ricochet. The ricochet is fun for students of any age or stage. Here's how it goes. You just put the second finger on the second fret of the A string. That gives you a B note. And then right after you play it, you release that finger down toward the floor, and it pulls the string and eventually plucks it. Okay, so you get 
plucking once with the right hand and then releasing down toward the floor with the left hand. And if you do this fast enough, it sounds like a pitoing, like a little ball bouncing off a wall. Pitoing. Like that. That's the ricochet. This could, you could imagine it's like a hockey puck bouncing off the goalpost. Pitoing. Whoops. Hit the post. Oh, I hit the crossbar. You know, you could have lots of fun with it. It's the ricochet. And you can do this on any string. That's the second finger on the second fret of the second string. It's a little harder to do on the internal strings, which is why I like to start with the A string. There it is on the C string. So you can do this anywhere. And honestly, I like to do it completely out of time. You know, just let students ricochet around the room on their own. You don't have to be really strict about the timing at this point. And this will sound really funny when you get a bunch of people doing it at the same time. They can do it fast. They can do it slow. They'll discover that it's actually much harder to do it slow. <laughs> That's way harder than doing this. Just let them explore this ricochet effect. Technically speaking, what you're teaching here is the pull-off. And we call it the pull-off for obvious reasons. You have your finger on the string and you pull it off. And that reveals another note. So the pull-off is one half of the equation. The other half is the more difficult half, which is the hammer. The hammer is also fun to teach, but it's a little more tricky, just technically speaking. The hammer is where you take that same finger, say, and you start above the string and you place that second finger down into the fret. And with some practice, you can hammer it so hard onto the string that you'll actually get a note out of it. It's not gonna be that loud. And you'll notice that as you move up the frets, that's now in the third fret, I'm hammering onto the string with the second finger. As we move up the frets, it gets a little easier. And sometimes the note will get a little louder because, well, just because. <laughs> the tension in the string is just more conducive to this sort of thing as I move up the neck toward the middle of the string. Anyway, the point is it just gets easier as you move up the frets. So don't be discouraged if down in the first, second, and third fret, it's a little harder to get a hammered note. And you can do this, once again, on any of the strings. There it is on the second string. You can hear how much quieter this is than the pull. This is, the hammer is by far the, the harder half of the equation. But once you have the hammer and you have the pull, now you've got the ingredients of a trill. And you can start to do this on any string. For example, the A string, if I pluck the A string and then hammer and then pull. Hammer and pull. Now, without touching the string at all with my right hand, I have the beginnings of a trill, right? Back and forth from A to B. A, B, A, B. Open string, hammer. Open string, hammer. Pull, hammer. Pull, hammer. And as it gets faster, 
it actually sounds like a proper trill. Now it's going to take a while to get it going that fast, but it's good to know where we're going with this. Okay, so that's one thing. That's the basic mechanics of how does this thing even work. And now comes the stage where you want to practice it. And you want to be a little methodical about this, because if you just sit there playing the A-B trill all day, yeah, I mean, that's good and everything, but it doesn't give you a sense of how to play that trill on different notes, how to approach that trill in different ways. Here's where you want to get a little methodical with it, in your own practice and in your teaching. I would suggest working this into a scale pattern maybe the C scale. For a start, I would try what's called a, a mordant. A mordant is really just a, a very short trill. It's like back and forth. That's a mordant. And it's just above and back down. I can do this on every note of the scale. And I might do it with my metronome, set to 60. 60 is great because you don't even need a metronome to get 60. You could use any old clock. <laughs> it's 60 beats per minute. So one note every two clicks, adding the mordant to each step of the scale, like this. Okay, now you might notice as you go through this that you're going to have to make some fingering changes. This is not the typical way of playing the C scale. In fact, what I'm doing when it comes down to it is I'm playing each of the normal notes of the C scale using my index finger. Normally, I would play the second finger here. I'm going to use the index finger because once again, I need that ring finger available for that higher trill note. As I go through the scale, I would normally play the note G here with a ring finger. And once again, I'm going to play it with an index instead so that I have the ability to trill above that. You can't really trill between strings. It's not really the same. I mean, I, you can, but it's a much, much more advanced technique. For now, we're going to keep the trill on one string. So I'm going through this whole scale basically playing each note with my index finger so that I have something above that finger to trill with. So once again, this is called the mordant, which I have to believe comes from the French word mordre for bite, right? So it's like we're taking a little bite or a nibble from every note. Just a little nibble, right? It does kind of sound like that. The next step, you might just want to take a, a double bite. Hmm, I want to take two bites of that note. Right? That's a double mordant. If I did that at uh, 60 beats per minute, it would sound like this. And if I really cranked it up after a few days of practice, maybe I'm going to sort of a 100. It would sound like this. 
Okay, now I'm making progress. Now I'm doing this at, at light speed, but you get the idea. You can see how I can turn what was a sort of a random ricochet exercise. I can turn this into a more methodical approach to learning. Maybe I want to go to a quadruple bite after that. Now I'm getting very close to something that really sounds like a trill. As I speed it up, it really turns from a, a mordant into a proper trill. The Baroque trill often starts on the note above the melody. So here's the melody note. But the trill starts on here. And then goes into the note that the composer wrote. That's just sort of a customary thing. It was just a convention in the Baroque era. And apparently it, it was not all across the board. It wasn't like every single Baroque musician did this, but it was something that was common during that time. And so it's something that we like to do now in deference to that era and that style of music. So instead of starting on that melody note, I'm going to start above that melody note. And I like it personally because it kind of, I get to lean into the melody more. I lean. And it just delays the inevitability of that melody note a little bit. And it's just a little more stylish and fun. So uh, try that if you like. It's not the only way to do the trill, but it's certainly a nice nod to the Baroque style. So, Marianne, I hope that gives you some ideas and strategies and some background on the trill so that you can have fun with it, but also teach it in a way that's methodical. Thanks for the great question, and uh, keep up the good work. Final question today, we're going to go to level two of the ukulele in the classroom method. This is a Baroque piece, once again, by a composer named Jean-Joseph Mouret. He wrote this piece called Rondo, and it's still popular today because it was used on TV. It was the theme song for the long-running Masterpiece Theater TV show. That might sound familiar. If it is, then great. Uh, if it's not, then welcome to Rondo. It's a wonderful piece. It's a wonderful way to teach melody. There are two ukulele parts, and they kind of tail each other like 
like birds chasing each other through the air. It's not quite a fugue, but sort of like a fugue, sort of a, a fake fugue. <laughs> and uh, this question comes to us from Jan, who is uh, in the Level 2 Jehui Teacher Certification Program as well. Uh, Jan says, this is beautiful. Uh, to stop the open C from ringing out, are you touching the third string slightly after you play the F note? That's quite tricky, she says. <laughs> now, what Jan is talking about is when we're playing a melody like this, etc., etc., do we let the open string notes ring out like bells, even though we might continue on and continue playing other melody notes over top? Or do we stop those open string notes so that they have only the same kind of ringing length as any other note? Here, let me give you the musical example. Listen to this note, C, which is the lowest note in this melodic line, and listen to how it continues to ring even as I play the, the next notes in the melody. Did you hear it? It probably rung for four or five more notes of the melody. You could still hear that C note in the background. Almost like on that beat. Da 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 gong da da. It's almost like somebody hits a big gong and that note just rings out and continues underneath the other melody notes. The question is, is that really stylish or appropriate and it depends who you ask it really depends some people love the sound of this gong note that just rings out and honestly if you were playing this alone and you were playing a solo performance of this you have more freedom at that point to kind of do what you think is right and hey if you're only one person probably the more accompaniment sound you can get the better so you know okay maybe if you're playing a solo arrangement but if i'm playing in an ensemble i have more of a responsibility to sort of contain my part and make it fit in with what everyone else is doing so if i was playing in an ensemble i would probably want to mute that c string once the next note comes in did you hear it no more c ringing out Here's the old way. You can still hear that C, but here's the new way. You don't hear that C ringing out. So back to the Pepsi taste challenge. <laughs> Which one do you prefer? Well, as I said, it depends a bit on the context, but generally speaking, if you're playing this in an ensemble, it would be nice to mute that C it takes out some of the muddiness of the sound and just makes the melody more clear. So what I'm doing there, Jan, is exactly what you've said. I'm touching the third string just slightly when I play the F note. So when I play that F note on the first fret of the E string, right as I play that F note, my middle finger is also coming down just slightly and touching the C string. So in this case, it almost looks like I'm playing two-thirds of a G7 chord. When I go to play that F note, the sort of phantom finger 
the uh, the middle finger is coming in just to do the job of stopping the C string from ringing. So it, it almost looks like I'm putting a chord down, but I'm only playing the F note as a melody note. The other finger is doing a different job. It's muting the string, just the way if you take the front off of a piano, you can see the, um, the sort of flap of fabric that comes in and mutes the strings to stop them from ringing. Well, your middle finger in this case is doing that same job. And then you sort of go by and you don't even notice that that C was an open string note. It just blends in like the rest of them. Now, okay, Jan's final comment here is, that's quite tricky. (laughs) And the reality is, yeah, that is quite tricky. It's not to say don't do it. It's not to say don't teach it. But just be aware that this is a this is on a level of microscopic detail that you're not going to get to with a lot of your students. That's just the way it is. We often don't have enough time in ukulele programs to get students to a level where we're able to have those conversations with them. Doesn't mean that you as the teacher don't benefit from knowing that this is an issue and knowing how to solve it if the question comes up. But are you really going to get to this? I don't know. Power to you. If you do, now you're prepared. The other thing to keep in mind is that this way of muting the C string is not the only way. There is one other, I think slightly easier, way to do this, and that is to find the F note, which is the note after the C, to find that F note on the C string, right? Because if you play the F note on the C string, well, then the C string itself can't keep resonating at the C note. This is so obvious. <laughs> I didn't even write this in my uh, initial reply to Jan. It wasn't until after I was thinking, hey, well, couldn't you just play the next note on the C string? And then you'd only hear one note at a time like this. Boom. Two birds with one stone. Now, it does change the character of the F note a little bit, because now I'm up at the fifth fret. That fifth fret of the C string is the F note. So, in some ways, I've kind of traded one problem for another. (laughs) I've dealt with the ringing C string problem very nicely. However, I have a new issue, and that is the character of the sound has changed. Because, as you know, when you shorten the string, you change the character. So here's uh, an F note on the E string, first fret. That's with a long length of string. Quite bright and resonant. But if I play that same note on the C string, listen to what happens. It's a little more muted. It's a little less shiny. And that's what happens as we move up the string. Every place that you play a note is going to have its own tonal quality. But this leads me down sort of another little rabbit hole. And that is, well, heck, if I've changed the tone of it and made it a little quieter, a little bit more shy, this is kind of like the shy F note. If I've made it a little more shy, well, maybe I can just stay in that neighborhood and play the rest of the melody line in that same way 
And then the whole melody sounds kind of shy, like this. Now I found all of those notes up there, the fifth, sixth, seventh frets, all on the middle two strings. This becomes a new way of playing the same melody, but it's not completely synonymous, is it? It has a different tonal quality. It has a different timbral quality, which is a fancy way of saying the tone is different. Okay, down here when I use the open strings in in the first three frets, kind of brash sounding, and as I move up the neck and play the same thing. You hear that different timbre. You hear a warmer, more muted, even just overall quieter sound. And here's where you can have some fun with it. You can actually use this as an expressive part of your performance. This is especially useful when you have a repeat in the music. And Rondeau does have a repeat. That entire first section gets played twice. And as one of my teachers once said, if you're repeating something, why? And that's a great question. <laughs> and most of the time, the answer to that question is, I'm repeating this section because it says so in the music. And I'm just doing it because it says so. But really, from the audience perspective, they're sitting there going, you know, we're, we're giving you our time to hear this section again. What more are you bringing to the party? Why are you repeating this? Is there some insight that we are getting the second time round that we didn't the first time round. And the most common way to make the second time more interesting is by adding dynamics. And the most common way to do that is to make the first time loud and the second time soft. And this is a really good place to start. It's a really good place to start introducing dynamics in your teaching, if you're a teacher. The idea of an echo effect is pretty universal that you play it loud once and you play it quiet the second time. And you can really accentuate that effect by playing it in a different position the second time. So the first time, I'll stay down in the first three frets whenever I can, use as much string length as I can, and I get this sound. second time I'm not just playing quieter I'm also playing in a different place on the neck I'm sort of starting there with the uh, index finger on the fifth fret of the E string as my starting point for the A. And then I'm staying up in that middle range of the neck. So instead of just playing it the same old way and trying to back off and play quieter and, and, and ultimately probably sound more timid than anything, I'm going to include the dynamics in my orchestration of this piece. I'm going to arrange the dynamics right into the way that I choose my fingerings and my finger positions. 
Now that's a bit subtle, but it's an interesting place that you can go with students once they have the basics of which note to play when under their fingers. And Jan, this all came from your question, which is, are you stopping that C string from ringing out? And it's amazing how we can start in that one place and the train of thought just sort of blossoms into these other tangents. I hope that's interesting and helpful. Jen, thanks for the great question. Thanks for tuning in for another Euctropolis podcast. I'm your host, James Hill, and I'll be back again next week with more real ukulele answers to real ukulele questions. And in the meantime, head over to euctropolis.com. That's where you'll find me and a whole community of students from around the world who are working on developing their skills as ukulele players and teachers. You'll find a whole library of unique online ukulele courses and a whole lot of free stuff to try out just for stopping by. So I'll see you there, euctropolis.com. And until next week, keep on strumming. Thank you.